I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guests today are M.E. O'Brien and Iman Abdelhadi. They're here to discuss their new book, Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. There is an event this Sunday, September 4th, celebrating the release of this book, a roundtable discussion with Dr. Lara Shiha. Hosted by the Psychosocial Foundation in conjunction with Parapraxis Magazine. I will link in the liner notes to this episode to the event Bright. You can also find find it at Instagram on Lada Sheha's Instagram page. She is psychoanalyst activist at Instagram. The event is by donation and takes place Sunday, September 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find Emmy O'Brien at Gender Horizon and Iman Abdelhadi at E-A-B-D-E-L-H-A-D-I at Instagram. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapar Books 2019. Visit our publisher's website, trapar.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. For more information. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. As always, thank you so much to our Patreon community. M.E. O'Brien also has a Patreon. You can find her at patreon.com slash M.E. O'Brien. That's M-E-O-B-R-I-E-N at Patreon. As always, you can find me on social media at Rawson underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Twitter and Instagram, and at TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. Our book is a um, series of fictional oral history uh, interviews where we project ourselves into the future as little old ladies um, <laughs> who are doing interviews in a post-revolutionary um, scenario in New York City um, in the 2060s. Uh, so this book actually came about, it was um, Emmy's idea to write it. Um, and uh, she invited me to write it with her because we're both oral historians. So she used to run the um, trans um, oral history project at the New York Public Library. Mm-hmm. And I do oral histories for my academic work as a sociologist um, and we share, you know, we have a 10 year friendship where we've been um, talking about politics and about science fiction and about revolutionary futures 
We even had a role-playing game um, about a near-future revolutionary scenario. Um, so part of Emmy's pitch to me was that I could write up my character from the role-playing game, which I did. Um, so yeah, that's how the book came about. We pitched it to a leftist um, publisher in Brooklyn, and they wanted the book, and we went ahead and wrote uh, so the book is titled Everything for Everyone, An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. It's published by Common Notions and came out at the beginning of August. Uh, people can order it from Amazon, from your local bookstore, if you can convince your bookstore to carry it. That's that's always a good way to get a hold of it. Uh, and as well as ordering it from the publisher, though that only really works for U.S. listeners. And... Um, uh, a man gave a good overview of it. It manages the form of the having uh, 12 oral histories throughout the book really allows us to cover an expansive range of topics. We focused a lot on how social reproduction works in the new society, on the dynamics of insurrection. A substantial number of the characters are trans or gender nonconforming in a variety of ways. We have a great uh, interview with that a man wrote focused on gestational surrogacy and new family structures. There's uh, family abolition themes throughout the book. There's a wonderful chapter about the liberation of Palestine, um, a lot about New York geography. So we really managed to cover a lot and engage a lot in a way that we hope is entertaining, is engaging, and really um, moves people to incorporate imaginative visioning processes into uh, social movements and into political activism. We think it's a, it's a important and awfully neglected part of a social justice work is thinking about the world that we actually want to live in and trying to sketch that out and see how it feels. That's a great point because we can, if we can imagine it, that's how to create it. You know, you have to be able to imagine it and kind of create it through this kind of visualization of what a future could be. Yeah, there's a long-standing debate in uh, Marxist and leftist circles about the place of utopian thinking. Uh, Marx had a very articulate critique of utopian socialists who thought that planning the future was really the main way to get there. And I think Marx was exactly correct that the only people who are going to make the future are those in the middle of it, that we, uh, that future generations in struggle uh, will have to figure out how to uh, address the conjunctures of the struggle that they're in, to address the problems before them, and that the future will be built by those in it. Um, and the sort of utopian visioning, its purpose in my mind is really not to planning to give instructions to other people for what they should carry out. But instead, I, I think utopian visioning still has a very important place in movements as a, as a collaborative, creative exercise for us all to do together to begin to think about the extrapolation of our values, of our struggles, of what we want to see, of what we think might be possible, and that that kind of visioning 
activity is a way of stepping beyond this kind of capitalist realism of of hopelessness that a lot of us live under, of uh, feeling like there's no way things could possibly get better, and that we're stuck in the nightmare of the world that we man that we live in. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the violences of this particular moment, and I've said this um, before, is this inability to imagine a better future for ourselves um, uh, or, you know, the sense of like intense helplessness of like hurtling towards the end of humanity and the end of the earth as we know it. Um, and I think this this book is a sort of invitation uh, to take our imagination back and to take hope you know, back from the current moment. Um, so I hope, and I think that's, you know, as I, as we've launched a couple of weeks ago and we're seeing folks react to the book, it seems like this is the, the main thing that people are excited about. Yeah. I think a lot of times, like, I love that it's a creative project because I think a lot of times, um, you can say a lot more uh, and kind of go farther in a way in works that are kind of fi fictional or creative, uh, even if they bring in these kind of elements of, of our, our reality, because, uh, yeah, in a way that you can't do so much with, say, like academic papers, you know. Yeah, I have a nonfiction book coming out uh, a year from now called Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care from Pluto Press. And I've been doing a lot of writing about family abolition for a while. And I think as a phrase, it tends to be quite alienating and terrifying to people, uh, the idea of abolishing families. And even sort of explaining some of what I mean, it takes a while for people to get their heads around it. Um, but depicting it fictionally, you know, having these stories of people uh, who are able to form partnerships or have children or have loving relationships, but do so in a broader community of the commune that really holds and supports people to be able to form a diversity of different kinds of family relationships with each other. Depicting it fictionally, I think, is much more accessible and much more compelling to people than the kind of communist theoretical work that I often do. Do you want to say, Aman, a bit about yeah. your chapter focused on family? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of core arguments of the book is that we will be much more liberated when, um, when our sort of like loves and our family relationships are not tied to our material needs, where we we all have housing, we all have food, we all have clothing, um, we all have health care. We don't have to, those things are not conditioned on who we're married to or who we have, to, who our parents are or who we cohabit with. Um, so we try to really uh, bring that forth in the book, the idea that these are these are separate entities and what would that mean for for us? Um, yeah, so the chapter, some of the the chapters that are later in the book uh, have folks who grew up in this revolutionary scenario. And so we're able to see the you know the family forms that they have um, and the sort of transition into, living in the communes. Um, so there's one um, 
one character, Latif Timbers, who is a gestation counselor. So in this in this future, we have the technology that anyone can choose to carry uh, a child um, to term, regardless of their assigned gender at birth. Um, and um, regardless of the body that they're in, generally. And um, so this character counsels people as they go through this decision. So we get to know a little bit more about family care forms, but also how different communes are organizing child care um, and um, education. It's so interesting. And I love that you have characters that have already grown up within this kind of different way of organizing things or different ways of organizing things so that they can speak from their experience as well. It's not just theoretical. Yeah, one of um, Emmy's chapters um, has a has a young person who goes through some um, ab abuse by a um, parental figure. And so th there's a lot of really interesting stuff about transformative justice and how do we how do we address conflict and and violence in in a revolutionary scenario outside the purview. I was just looking up the passage where um, uh, about the uh, question of transformative justice, um, trying to see if there's something to read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'm interviewing Kayla Puan, and uh, she's uh, 17 years old. She's a trans woman living in the North Ironbound commune of Newark. And I say three quarters of the way into the interview, you said there was a sad time. She pauses and said, yeah, after Kareem died, she has four parents. Kareem and Joseph are a gay uh, male couple that are two of her four parents. She says, yes, after Kareem died, Joseph got really upset and was so, so mad at the time, all the time. He was drinking a lot. My memories of it are vague, but I was asking around about it and to get ready for this interview. It was a big deal for me, I think, even if I didn't understand it all. One night, Joseph attacked me, I guess, hit me a bunch of times. Sarah and Caleb were gone at the time, and it was just Joseph and me. He had never done that before, I'm pretty sure. I'd come out as trans that year, I knew I was a girl, and I think it was very confusing for him. And Kareem dying was so, so hard for everyone, but especially for Joseph. Kareem was di died uh, in a military engagement against fascists in the mountains of Colorado. And Joseph was upset about the refugees who moved in around then. I don't know why. They say I didn't have wounds you could see very easily, but I didn't tell anyone. But, I f but people figured it out very quickly. I was going to the crash for school three hours a day, and there were four adults there I was really good friends with, and we shared our brownstone with another group of adults and kids upstairs, and I knew all of them well. And then everyone who worked in the garden in the mornings knew me because I was one of the kids who was around all the time, and they all immediately knew something was wrong and something had happened. They had this big assembly and argued about what to do all night. At one point, two friends talked with me for an hour about what I wanted. I actually remember that part really well, strangely, that conversation. I ask, what came out of that? And she responds, 
They decided Joseph had really fucked up very badly. They made him move, and three of his friends volunteered to make an accompaniment. One of the three stayed with him all the time for two years. That seemed very long. He also had to do all this counseling, and I guess he ended up talking about Kareem a lot. That's what he told me later. Joseph visited me once a week, even though I saw him in the canteen on most days. But he always had a friend with him all the time, and I could tell they weren't ever, ever letting him be alone or even run away. It was hard and weird. That helped me with my tics and stomach aches and my feelings, and it also really helped me thinking about being a girl, it turned out. It's beautifully written, and, you know, it also made me think, like, this idea of kind of breaking down, abolishing the family structure, like you said, and kind of breaking down that the the nuclear family and going to different structures of, like, uh, ways of living in community really is going back to, you know, a lot of different ways that people have been living for thousands of years before this, like, current, you know, very Western capitalist culture culture structure you know so it's really uh it's like not only something that could be for the future but it's also kind of uh taking us back in a way to other ways of living that have worked uh well for long before this current society which clearly i mean I, all i can think of is a society is so like death drive oriented it's just like so destructive uh, I Yeah, family and social reproduction is a very big part of this story and trying to think about how that could be done in a more free, collective, and shared way. Um, I, given the topic of this podcast uh, and, you know, the sort of general context of um, psychoanalysis, I thought it would make sense to talk a little bit about uh, the role of trauma and healing yeah, is a major theme throughout the book. Many of the characters uh, are really quite explicit in dealing with trauma from the military conflicts with fascists and the U.S. government, from the chaotic breakdown of uh, capitalist and imperialist society that uh, that predates, that leads to the possibility of insurrection and some of the horrible things that happen to people. And that there's, and, and people just living under racial capitalism, living under our world now, that there's a lot of characters who need to heal in a variety of ways. And we explore different modalities throughout the book that sort of different characters are engaged in various kinds of healing processes. And one of the themes of the book is the possibility of collective healing that emerges in social movements and social change, that some of the characters' trauma and struggles can only be effectively addressed through mass collective action and transforming the social structures uh, around them. And they have a personal dimension of that healing process, but that the broader context of social change is really opens up new opportunities and new forms of relationships that can be healing and transformative for people. Um, Yeah. 
Absolutely. And like you said before, you know, if everybody needs them, everyone has housing and clothing and food and shelter and these kind of health care, these kinds of things, then they're not stuck in the in these dependency with, you know, uh, families that might be abusive or a partner or, you know, uh, it really gives people a lot more freedom from the outset. And then, of course, like you said, having these collective movements then gives a, a automatic community sense of community there as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the importance is 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 balancing this idea of individual well-being with, you know, community well-being, right? So I think that um so so much of you know the way that we talk about mental health um right, you know, in the mainstream is about individual essentially individuals like pulling themselves up by their mental bootstraps, right? Um and um and I think in this context we really consider what it's like um for people to think about their wellness in the context of a society that's also doing well. Um, and, and I think it's a, it's a sort of totally radical vision um, from what we see now. And anytime I, my training as a psychologist, I, I have a society and anytime I think about my graduate training in psychology and like all these things, you know, they were actively pathologized. Like they taught us like, you know, if people live in family structures that like aren't nuclear family structures, like it's actually like pathologized. And they say, oh, well, maybe if they're from this culture or this other culture, uh, then it might be OK because it's culturally sanctioned. But uh, otherwise, no, you know, and it's just uh, it's just so appalling, uh, the, the training that psychologists get who are supposed to be you know helping people uh with their kind of mental health and helping people kind of find themselves and live live lives in a better way uh, and instead like any way of living that's not this kind of very narrow carved out norm is pathologized even even in the training for the people who are supposed to be helping people get out of those systems you know it's just appalling yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think I think, you know, in in when we when we zoom out as I'm <laughs> want to do as a as a sort of um as a sociologist, right? When we zoom out and we look at trends in um in mental illness, right? When we look at um you know, the rates of suicide increasing um when we look at anxiety increasing and these types of things, it's hard to to not point at the social structures that are um, that are creating these these conditions that really these epidemics um, these mental health epidemics are uh, are attributable to the ways that we have structured our society. Mm-hmm. Um, so these things are intrinsically linked, right? Um, and so a solution that focuses entirely on individuals um, misses the misses the um, the disease itself. Right. And only only treats the symptoms. Absolutely. Um, and the event that you're having, let's make sure to mention the event that you're having coming up with Parapraxis magazine and a little bit about the magazine. Sure. Um, so on uh, Sunday, September 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern, Parapraxis magazine and the Psychosocial Foundation are hosting a man, me, and Laura Shihai to discuss our book, uh, to discuss the themes around healing, the liberation of Palestine, the sort of broader context and vision of the book. 
Um, people can register online through the Psychosocial Foundation. There's an Eventbrite. Uh, and so uh, everyone is encouraged to come. It's one of our only scheduled online events. So it's a good opportunity for people internationally who aren't in, uh, in one of the handful of cities that we're visiting to be able to hear us discuss the book. Um, and it's being hosted by these two new entities. I understand you're going to have people on from from the Psychosocial Foundation Parapraxis Magazine. Mm -hmm. I am one of the um, associate editors at Parapraxis Magazine. It's a new endeavor to have a magazine of psychoanalytic theory and politics. Our first issue is going to be on the family problem. Um, we've been we're several months into a six month seminar. Uh, focused on the family problem right now. Uh, a few hundred people have registered and are attending our sessions. We are both engaging psychoanalytic work that could be read as critiques of the family, both classical and contemporary, um, but also intermixing it with black feminism, Marxist critiques, family abolitionists, and trying to open up a space that bridges between academics and activists and psychoanalysts and clinicians uh, to be able to have a dialogue about the family uh, and its complexity and contradictions. Um, and the, the, that will be the theme of the first issue and a similar mix of amazing people. We Most of the articles are written and being edited at this point. I'm co-editing the feature section on the family problem. But it's a pretty incredible endeavor, and there's a lot of amazing events the Psychosocial Foundation is organizing, a series of lectures and book promotions and conversations, a variety of sort. And I think it's uh, a very exciting in, uh, effort at really trying to think about psychoanalysis alongside um, radical politics and critical thinking and uh, and it's very much needed in this moment. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm, Hannah asked me to be an editorial advisor. So I'm an editorial advisor, but you know, I'm not a, a contributing editor in any way yet. So I haven't uh, seen what's happening yet. So I'm really excited to see how it comes out. Well, thank you for uh, lending your name in support of the project and being on our masthead, Vanessa. And we we look forward to roping you in in the future <laughs> when opportunities arise. Yeah. While we're on the topic of events, um, we also have a couple of events coming up in um, in Chicago, in Minneapolis, um, and um, a few other cities. Uh, one I wanted to highlight um, is that uh, I'll be in conversation with Sophie Lewis at the Socialism Conference in um, Chicago on the weekend of September um, 4th. Um, uh, so, yeah, and in fact, our session is on September 4th, I believe, at 1030. Um, so if you're going to be in Chicago and attending socialism, definitely come through um, for that conversation. We have events coming up in uh, Chicago, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, um, we're potentially available to do more events, although travel costs are an issue, but um, we would be happy to join other people's, you know, podcasts or conversations. We have a couple of published interviews that have come out 
and um, some of them are oh, and and Berlin. A man's going to make it to Berlin. Some of them are just with a man. Some are with both of us. Some are with me. Um, but these there are uh, a number of places you can check us out. Um, on social media, I'm Gender Horizon on Twitter. I also have a Patreon. Um, a man is a, a man Abdahadi on Twitter. Wonderful. Yep. And I'll link to all of these and uh, link to the events as well so people can access them easily. Since I'm also a good millennial, you can also follow me on Instagram at eabdelhadi. Wonderful. It sounds like it's so great that the book's being so well received and promoted and you have so many events coming up. Yeah, neither of us are fiction writers, and I don't think we think of ourselves. I mean, we were not fiction writers before this. We, I don't think we either of us think of ourselves as sort of literary giants by any means. And so it, you know, who know? We had no idea how the book would be received, um, but it seems like people are really quite hungry for thinking about a better world. That there is a uh, a craving for utopia right now and a real resonance uh, and that people get very excited and have a lot to say uh, looking over the book. And we've uh, had some great conversations that have come out of that. One of our blurb writers was Dean Spade and they said um, they said that they uh, they think that people will be arguing about the book for years, and I'm just waiting for those debates. I want people to <laughs> I want people to argue with me, um, I, or at least I want to see what 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 seems like uh, what people resonate with and what they think might not work, um, just out of curiosity on my end. But please do do it nicely, you know. Um, uh, I did tell people, though, at our L.A. launch that I absolutely do not want anyone to come up to me with any um, date discrepancies or typos. Um, please keep those to yourself <laughs> if you find those. Uh, Dean Spade's blurb, it's, uh, it's not just arguing. He says, everything for everyone is the book we all need right now. It lets us imagine what can feel unimaginable in this moment a total reorganization of social relations toward our mutual survival and the dismantling of the ruling death cult. This is a book we will all be obsessing over, arguing over, and talking about in the coming years as we try to conceive how collective action can get us through these harrowing times. I am grateful to uh, Abdahadi and O'Brien for making something we need so bad, so compelling, and readable. So thank you. Uh, they they wrote this beautiful blurb for us um, and is uh, Dean's organizing has been a source of admiration and respect for me for many, many years. Yeah, it's wonderful. And no, I, I truly believe in fiction, too, as, as making things happen as well, because, you know, if you look at any science fiction from the 70s, 60s, 80s, you know, it's like so much of it is like what we're kind of what we've imagined to have happen and you know, we i've been watching like old sci-fi movies uh like soylent green and 
uh, Logan's Run, and they're kind of cheesy in their way because of the times, but like, you know, they're dealing with the same kinds of issues. It's like the earth has been polluted, you know, we've destroyed so much and drained so many resources. They're, they're looking at all similar sort of issues that, that we're facing, and it's like, uh, yeah, they imagine dystopia, but it would be nice for us to imagine some something else so we can get out of it in a different way, not just kind of, you know, drive this into the ground. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it was significant for both of us that we did the bulk of writing this under lockdown, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I, as someone who loves dystopic sci-fi, I'm just like, there was this moment of being like, no, no, I don't need to read about the dystopia. I am living the dystopia. Mm -hmm. um, so it's <laughs> I would like to read something else. And what else are you all working on? Emmy, you mentioned that you were working yet another book coming out next year. Uh, yeah, I mentioned it. This book, Family Abolition um, from Pluto, currently being edited. So I'm working on that, working on Parapraxis magazine. I'm also the editor of Pinko, a gay communist magazine. And we're uh, starting to orient towards our third issue. A man is working on another book as well. Yeah, um, I'm working on a couple projects. I mean, I'm working on my academic book, which is about, um, which is currently titled Impossible Futures, Why Muslim Women, um, Why M Women Leave Muslim Communities While Men Stay. Um, so this book is about um, people's pathways through Muslim communities and the ways that people are structured to um, live out lives that they ultimately find structurally impossible. Um and uh, but more excitingly, um, I'm also uh, a feature in this uh, or I'm also the subject in this documentary that should be coming out next year. Um, that's a feature length film about my relationship with my mother and the ways that we navigate our various differences, um, but especially around my queerness. Um, and it's called Coming Coming Around. Um, so definitely be on the lookout for that. And if you follow me on social media, you'll see updates as they as they come up. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to get tenure y'all. It's, uh, yeah, it requires a lot of writing. So I'm doing that. <laughs> Wishing you all the best with that. Absolutely. One, another major theme in the book is, uh, around settler colonialism that, uh, one of the characters, uh, is, uh, with the Eastern Shoshone nation, uh, in Wyoming and talks a lot about the role of indigenous, indigenous leadership in, the revolutionary struggle against fascists in the Midwest. Another of the characters is involved in ecological restoration and talks about uh, indigenous collaborations around agriculture and sovereignty. Um, a man has an incredible chapter about the liberation of Palestine. Um, I don't know if you want to say a bit about that or, or read anything from that, from that chapter, man. Yeah, I mean, I would be happy to. I think one of the sort of core arguments of the book um, in terms of the macro theory of it all is that the modern nation state has to fall for capitalism to fall. Mm -hmm. So essentially we have, um, you know, weak nation states um, facing increasing crisis because of uh, climate change. And um, as those crises proliferate, um, nation states are both unable to meet, um, meet 
meet them, but also are unable to prop each other up because they're sort of embroiled in more and more um, of these breakdowns. Um, so one of the thoughts was about which states um, which states would sort of fail first, essentially. Um, so, you know, for us, the revolution doesn't start in the U.S. or in New York. It starts in um, it starts elsewhere. It starts in what we think of now as the developing world. And and um, the Levant plays a key role. Um, the Levant is already a place with with failing states. Um, but I think for me, the, the question of Palestine, which looms large in the Arab imaginary, but also in the world's imaginary, um, comes in here as well, right? That um, as soon as the sort of structures of oppression start to weaken, um, people step in to sort of claim their rights and to claim um, uh, dignified lives and to reclaim, um, you know, the, the futures that were stolen from them by settler colonialism and by capitalism. So where we see that first happening in the book um, is in, 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 in the story of this Palestinian character who grows up as a sort of burnout in Bay Ridge, um, which if you're familiar with New York is a, is a Palestinian heavy um, neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, um, this character grows up very disaffected and as things, um, as uprisings uh, begin in in, in Palestine, um, she immediately makes her way over and participates in, in this liberatory struggle. Um, and so we're able to kind of see both the macro of the way that um, structural change happens, but also the micro of the sort of emotional trajectory of someone plugging into those um, struggles and participating in them. Uh, so it was a very emotional chapter for me, um, for me to write. And since I've described it, I hope that you'll go and read it. Um, uh, but uh, it's it was definitely for me as a Palestinian, a way to sort of um, to imagine to this this liberated future, which um, we as Palestinians imagine every day um, and in community with each other. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think uh, one of and to kind of go on a bit of a tangent from this, but I think a, a potentially important one is that I think that this interplay between the personal and the political, between the individual and the structural, is exactly what we're able to play with, um, with this oral history form. Uh, I think Michelle and I have talked a lot about, uh, as, as oral historians, about the ways that this this form as as analysis and as observation in the uh, real world um, allows for this kind of multi-level understanding of both individual agency and uh, structural change. So it was cool to sort of flip the flip the script and 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 um, instead of being the observer and analyst uh, as an oral historian to then be the sort of author and. Uh, and 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 be able to imagine um, both of those levels of of change through writing these interviews. That's beautiful. I'm wondering too. This is a little side tangent, but if you don't mind talking about it, um, since you both study this, you'd be great people to ask. How do you imagine a future? Um, like with communism, we're living more communally that doesn't have like some of the pitfalls of the past. Like how do you imagine it to be different and how do you imagine it to work 
worked better um, than like past attempts have? Uh, this is a very big question, and I uh, I think to just to start off, most of the experiments with uh, state socialism in the 20th century have very little to do with uh, the way we depict communism. Our future is anti-statist. It's not organized around the leadership of a single revolutionary party. It isn't uh, geared around the survival of particular countries in a in a broader capitalist world. Um, and, you know, whatever good things or bad things, the war about the Soviet Union and communist China are really of a very different sort than how we're imagining communism here. I, uh, I think sort of two big things that stand out as differences. One is that this is very much a kind of bottom-up future. This is something that people build in mass, that the enormous majority of the population is very involved in building the communes as a strategy of survival in the midst of social breakdown, that there's the new forms of governance and administrative decision-making that emerge. We allude to these uh, AI algae farms that manage uh, a huge system of online discussion forums where people make decisions about production and distribution, that these are mass participatory and democratic forms that involve huge numbers of people to uh, coordinate the, the the dynamics of the society as a whole. So that that's a, that's very different than a kind of top-down state form. Um, and then the other piece is I'm very skeptical that communism could be possible without uh, really defeating capitalism and the capitalist state form across much of the world. That there was a moment, I think, in the Soviet Union during the first four years or so of the revolution when there really was mass participation. Uh, workers formed these, what they called Soviets, these democratic councils in, uh, in that they took over large sections of the military and industry and factories um, where they made decisions collaboratively about what to do, and that the Soviets really were the foundation of the initial revolution, um, but that the revolutionary spirit of it was defeated uh, ultimately by the early 20s or so in my mind, but that that defeat was almost inevitable once it became clear there wasn't uh, that the communist revolution had been defeated in Germany in, in 1918 that there was just no hope for a country like Russia to be able to actually be a communist society uh, in a, a global context of capitalist imperialist powers. And I'm, I'm very skeptical about the sort of survival of socialism in one country. Um, yeah, there are other differences as well, but those are two that leap out to me. Yeah, because then you're always fighting against the cap the capitalist uh, imperialism. Yeah, I think I think there's this way in which we think about um, capitalism as the driver of progress and progress and and especially you know technological progress or sort of um, 
yeah, as, as an end in itself under capitalism. And one of the ways that I thought was, one of the things that I thought was interesting was meditating on the idea of progress as a utilitarian, you know, as, as basically part of thinking about human functioning and, and the fact that we, you know, I think we as human beings have a, a drive towards ingenuity and, 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 um, and and innovation but that these things aren't what what happens when those things are not being driven by a profit motive and especially a profit motive that that is that essentially hoards you know hoards resources um and drives everyone to to this this kind of impulse to this winner take all system that we have right so i i think one of the things that we think of a lot in or that one of the things that comes out subtly in the book is this idea of a kind of a slower pace, um, even though the pace is still forward moving, uh, this sense of prioritizing both individual and community well-being, um, you know, the idea that sometimes it will take long assembly meetings and, and arguments, you know, um, that the most efficient way forward isn't necessarily the most morally worthy way forward, you know. I think it's a total shift in perspective and it's it's a subtle one but I think one that permeates throughout the book um, in the sense that, um, yeah, that we're not, we're not on this, like, like you called it, Vanessa, a death drive, right. Um, towards progress for its own sake. And, and the reality is that, you know, what's been dubbed progress has often just been profit for, for particular people. And, and some of it has been beneficial and we try to retain those things, but um I feel like I'm I'm going on a I'm I'm kind of on a tangent here, but I I think it's it's this it's kind of fundamental shift in paradigm of um, in, in the book, right? Um, that we're not we're not being driven by this this kind of intense. We're really just trying to meet our needs, and in the process, um, everything actually becomes more creative, but also kinder. Um, and and moves forward, but just in 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 gentler ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Michelle. I mean, a start. I think a starting point for thinking about a just society is what enables and supports human flourishing. That we all have a capacity to develop. Uh, intellectually, spiritually, culturally, creatively, that we all have a a creative means of engaging the world that is, I think, really at the heart, although we don't always theorize it directly, at the heart of what makes psychoanalysis a therapeutic endeavor, what makes uh, therapy effective or possible, um, that humans humans are are creative beings curious about the world who are uh, uh, can be excited by being transformed by our activity and by transforming that which is around us and that this capacity is uh, channeled in very particular ways under capitalism we have to use our creativity and our uh, our brilliance to try to figure out how to survive in selling our labor on the market. And that if under different social conditions, it would be really possible for this creative creativity to be turned to contribute to our own ethical starting place of the book and 
we that shows up in a number of ways and a number of times throughout. But trying to think about the emergence of social forms uh, based on care, based on collaboration, based on mutual respect that could that could foster and support and enable that flourishing. No, it's not really beautifully put by both of you. And, uh, you know, like you said, humans do have this like innate creativity and drive and, and really innovative. And it's a way to like support and nurture that um, so that everyone, everyone is supported and nurtured and benefiting rather than exploiting people, you know, so that there's very few few are benefiting um, and same thing with the earth I mean the earth is clearly like every time I walk around the town and there's like flowers and flower shops like in New York walk around New York there's flowers and flower shops everywhere and all this fruit is like incredible the amount of of sustenance that grows from the earth and if we could just like support that in ways that are healthy for the planet instead of exploiting it and poisoning it you know and we can, we could do it. I mean, I'm like absolutely sure we could do it if, like you said, there was this grassroots effort to really do that. Uh, but it seems like there's this like small group, and I also believe that. Like, I feel like most people uh, would would like to work together in this way, but this is, it seems to be this like narrow group that's just so greedy and destructive, and they really cause a lot of problems for the rest of us, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our, you know, our resources are being hoarded, but also our time, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like, you know, if listeners or readers can just imagine for a moment that they are not. Yeah. Like imagine what all the things you could do with your life if you didn't have to <laughs> sort of, you know, if you didn't have to scramble for your survival, if you didn't have to be on the hustle all the time. No, to be fair, you know, in the in the communes, like people c contribute, you know, people have these, you know, every commune has a kind of different work structure in terms of, you know, but, you know, these are short shifts, you know, we don't really have, we don't imagine people and, and, and they're flexible and they're not, um, you know, there is no one just trying to extract all this value from your labor, right? Um, um, so, um yeah, so it's just a, like a totally different relationship with work and with one's own kind of capacity to create and 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 to labor. Yeah, like I stayed in this uh, monastery once. It was a Benedictine monastery in Big Sur, California. I had a, a friend whose father was a monk there, and uh, we got to stay there. And it was it was you know it was a commune, and the people. You know, some people worked in the kitchen, some people worked in the bookstore, some people worked cleaning, some people worked gardening. Um, and that, that that's what they did. They made sure that everyone uh, kind of had a place and had a, a kind of job that they that they enjoyed, you know, that they were good at and enjoyed. And yeah, everyone chipped in in that way. And, and they all got to live there together. And then like we could stay there in a cabin. Everything was vegetarian. And it was really it was really wonderful. I thought I'd read another passage, um, perhaps from earlier in the book. We've been focused a lot on the sort of emergence of the commune, but the first few chapters have a lot around the insurrection, the kind of popular uprising. Mm -hmm. And it draws a bit from my experience being a part of mass 
insurrections, uh, mass protests, and how transformative they can be, uh, what it's like to be in a large crowd that manages to get the upper hand against riot police and having a powerful presence in the streets. I thinking about the anti-globalization protests in the late 90s, some of the Black Lives Matter uprisings, the George Floyd uprising that happened. Um, so I thought I'd read a couple of, uh, a couple of pages from uh, the first interview with Miss Kelly. So she's an African-American trans woman and a sex worker. She lives in Hunts Point in the Bronx. I used to work at a syringe exchange in the Bronx. Uh, she's a sex worker and was very involved uh, in the transformation of sex work uh, after the revolution. Um, and Hunts Point in New York is home to a large produce market that feeds Manhattan, um, a lot of the Manhattan grocery stores and uh, uh, restaurants. And in the book, um, there a, there's a disease and famine and uh, food is very short, but the produce market keeps operating to feed New York. So it becomes uh, uh, sort of, it has surrounded by a military barricade, but then the military gets uh, drawn off to fight uh, in the uh, southeast and west. And so, uh, and the police are understaffed, so it's relatively undefended. So I ask, you were telling us about the events leading up to the insurrection. She says, that's right. We fought hard, the girls did, with everyone else as the hunger went on and the army was treating us bad. Then in 52, the army mostly cleared out. The taking of the market happened at the beginning of May that year. I guess the army had gone down south or out west because from what I heard, the fighting was really kicking off. The police were still out defending the market, but the street organizations were getting in shootouts with them all over the Bronx, so they were all jumpy. The street orgs weren't that active in the point. The girls didn't get along with them too well, and by them, we were pretty well organized. So there weren't a lot of police around, not enough, that's for sure. In the fighting, people started being able to get along with each other, like everyone wasn't so mean all the time. Some of the street orgs started being res more respectful to the girls. I think the commune kind of began there, fighting alongside each other in the streets. And it got in hot early that year, sometime in April. It was just brutal in the 90s at night. The mid-30s, I mean, you know, we used Fahrenheit then. It was hot. There was maybe 20 cadets total guarding the market. And that night, everyone was out. The army was gone. You couldn't even get their fucking nutritional paste. The punks were still out with their brown rice, but people had grown to hate them for it. It was hot. I was in so much sweat in this slink, this beautiful thing with sequins that caught the streetlights. A lot of people, a few K, we had these big fires in the streets. Why we were setting fires when it was already so hot, I don't know. But we had these big bonfires and some kids had set up a catapult and were throwing these burning trash cans over the wall. Then someone got a semi, this huge truck, and drove it into the barricade and the wall came down. We stormed the market. 
We beat the crap out of those pigs and the private troops the market had hired. We torched their offices. Most people ran off with whatever food they could carry. A lot of people hadn't seen a green vegetable in years, hadn't seen meat, and here it was, stall after stall, filled with the best food you could ever imagine. I got my friend Cindy to bring Miss Reggie some shrimp because I know how much my Reggie loves her shrimp. So all these people were all over the market, and we stayed. We held it. Some police came in the morning, and we used that catapult and hurled these burning trash cans at their cars. We took the Bruckner then, shut the whole thing down. It was maybe a 100 people in the morning, and a few hundred more came in the coming week as we argued about what to do. Then I remember the night. When I remember the night, I see the trash cans on fire flying through the air and everyone cheering and running over the wall when it came down. I say, sounds incredible. She says, oh, girl, it was. It was so beautiful. Say, that was a turning point in it all. Yeah, I've been told the birth of the New York Commune, the night it all broke open, the Battle of Hunts Point. Then uh, I ask uh, a bit later, what does the Commune mean to you? It means we take care of each other. It means everything for everyone. It means we communized the shit out of this place. It means we took something that was property and made it life. And then she goes on to talk about how the um, market becomes the hub of bringing in groceries from liberated farms uh, that uh, occupied and transformed farms around Pennsylvania and the Hudson Valley and New York um, to distribute to the communes and how Miss Kelly becomes really central to managing social reproduction in the commune at Hunts Point that manages the distribution of produce. Wonderful. Yes, because of course there has to be a revolution. And that's also important to imagine, yeah? Yeah, I mean, things get worse before they get better. Um, and the transition out of capitalism isn't, you know, isn't through nonviolent protests. Um, you know, there's no grand march that ends the whole thing or a series of petitions. Um, there's definitely, you know, people are confronting the um the intense violence of the state um and um you know capital really tries to defend itself um so that's an important element of the book and returning to the theme of trauma you know a lot of those confrontations are also and the sort of living in 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 the crisis of the fall um you know that's a lot of where the trauma of some of the characters comes from Yeah, because I, I have a friend who um, was born in St. Petersburg in Russia, and uh, he lived through uh, the kind of fall. Of, he lived through both the fall of uh, communism uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and then also like when Putin came to power. And, and he said, you know, he says often that people... Uh, don't really understand how hard it is when the structure that you're living under falls. 
um, and how turbulent that is. And he's, you know, he was telling me that that's how Putin came to power is because they needed someone to kind of reorganize after like years of, you know, people came in and stole the resources. And that's how they ended up with all these oligarchs and things like that, um, because the, there was no structure. And these people just came in and kind of you know, took took everything and made themselves wealthy. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on, Vanessa. It's really been a great pleasure. Um, uh, it's it's good to be back, and thank you for your help in promoting our event coming up on se Sunday, September 4th, and uh, spreading the word about our book. Yeah, and anytime when your new books come out, anytime you want to come back, just let me know. You're always welcome. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, such a great way to start the weekend. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Iman Abdelhadi and M.E. O'Brien. Join them on Sunday, September 4th for a celebration party for their new book, Everything for Everyone. An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052-2072. You can find links and more information at Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. Becoming formless, opening doors we didn't know existed. With the establishment of the patriarchy comes the delineation of gender. What makes a man and what makes a woman? The patriarchy establishes an entire system of culture created to perpetuate itself. It continually enforces and reinforces its own system, which it created. Patriarchy defines masculine characteristics in positive terms, while the feminine is negative. Patriarchy also establishes and enforces the binary of the opposition masculine-feminine in the unconscious. The subject is inserted into her sexual nature, sexuality preceding the I. Attempts to grasp onto an identity can be seen as one grappling with sexuality, with one's intrinsic sexual nature, attempting to categorize it, restrict it, contain it, and give it a limit in an effort to control it. Established in the original argument and is continually operated and reinforced by the system it created. The question now is what happens when such a patriarchal system begins to be put into question? 
when its structure of gender and prescribed role problems begins to crumble. Historically, during times of instability, when the patriarchal structure was put into question, there was merely an exchange of one primal father for another. Take down a king and replace him with another king. The system, formless void, in which our periodic table of elements, as well as the human form, was created. As humans, we are predestined to regiment. There is routine and there is deviation. If we look at the cut-up technique designed by Brian Geisen, we can see a connection between routine and the room. With a first-come, first-served policy each morning, this disrupted attachment to material possessions, personal space, privacy, separation between self and others. When that takes down the previous system, ends up being structurally the same underneath. One revolution replaces another, and then becomes the ruler. Such choral techniques also have a separating or discriminating effect, as in the threshing. An image that Plato employs in his love, warmth, exploration, creating memories in me, and so many others. I'm so honored to have met you. Your passing makes no sense. Death seldom does. Your leaving us so soon will have to be a motivation. An incentive to value life even more, and not waste even a moment of it. In the current situation, hopefully, the system is being deconstructed, and there is a real fight against maintaining the status quo. Heart to heart, and soul to soul, we can and will carry on doing what we do. Art to art. And roll to roll, we will keep your memory alive, loving you for who you were, still are, and always will be. It was definitely inspired by alchemy and the idea of the hermaphrodite. In folklore, the original human or the original virus, and also an angelic representation of humans. That image fascinated us. Because this was a way of being that was fruitful in every possible way. An artist's muse. The hermaphrodite is a symbol of creative potential. The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest will come. Deviation. According to Brian Geisen and William S. Burroughs, the cut-up technique is a juxtaposition of language, cutting up written text to form new text, creating third mind. Looking at deviation, we can see it is essentially a physical cut-up that can be done at will or by the unconscious mind at any moment. Chaos is third mind. Third mind is. Deviation. 
therefore becoming formless in the state of being through both conscious and the unconscious.